Amen. Turn around and say hello to somebody today. Good to see you tonight. God bless you. I'm glad for folks that have come out even on a cold evening. We are reading through the Bible. Our, our uh, app, uh, which was developed entirely by uh, Brother Tyler, for our benefit, is readyourbiblethrough.com. And if you tap onto that, you will see on your electronic device that today you should be reading in the Old Testament through Deuteronomy 32 and in the New Testament through Acts chapter 10. These are some great passages of Scripture. We are on, on schedule to finish up before the end of the year reading through the entire Bible. I hope that you will. This morning we distribute it to everyone. We'll give you a copy later on tonight. We've got it up online so you can see it. The day of the crucifixion and triumphal entry to resurrection uh, chronology. And uh, there it is. It is um, the, the comparison between Gentile Roman days and Hebrew Jewish days. And it shows that Jesus died on our Wednesday. And he observed his Lord's Supper, established that on what would be Wednesday early because their day started at sundown. So after sundown on Tuesday... Tuesday night. Therefore, on Tuesday night, April the 12th, which is the Tuesday before Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we are going to observe the Lord's Supper right here with our extended church family. Everyone is invited to come and join with us. 7.30 is the time. Let's make sure all of the uh, elderly and shut-ins have a way to get here, and uh, let's have a great time in the Lord commemorating and remembering why Jesus came. We have uh, a great day on Resurrection Sunday, that's Easter to the world, and it's April 27th. We have flyers and we have packets of material. And Palm Sunday is the week before, that's April the 10th. And we'll have something special going on those days. Also have flyers out here on the Welcome Center for all the ladies and the girls. Wonderful little flyer. Apron, strings, and pockets, ladies and girls, spring tea. It's Saturday. April 30th at 1 p.m. And all the ladies and girls are invited and it is going to include delicious food, fellowship, lots of fun, surprises, prizes, and it's F-R-E-E free. So there you go. I want you to come and be a part of that. Now, a very, 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 very important event is going to occur this week on Saturday, the wedding of Gabe and Quinn. This Saturday, April 2nd at 11 a.m., everyone is invited. I believe it is also free. All right. So, amen. Looking forward to a great, great week. We're going to be here in our place Wednesday night looking at the book of Colossians verse by verse once again. Now, tonight I have read as we have begun from Matthew chapter 26. That occasion, I believe, would be the first that would come to mind. If I announced my title, which is Deserting Jesus, Abandoning, Deserting Jesus, people would say, that's it, that's it. You're talking about when they all forsook him and fled. Well, that was in the moment, the heat of the moment. What I'm going to talk to you about tonight has something to do with, it's like the difference between a crime of passion and a premeditated homicide, all right? The, the, the crime of passion, unfortunately, occurs. And there are many men and women who are incarcerated today because they didn't have control over their emotions at a given moment. They went too far, did something they should not have done, and now they're going to spend the rest of their life, whatever that may be, behind bars or a long period of time uh, paying back 
uh, in the eyes of some court of jurisprudence uh, for the crime that has been committed in the heat of the moment. That's what the disciples did. Now, two followed after Jesus. We know that Peter followed afar off. And many people are critical of Peter because of that. He should not have followed afar off. He should have been willing to give his life because he said so. Do you know that life and death are in the, in the power of the tongue? And he said he'd be willing to even die for Jesus. And eventually he did die a martyr's death, we're told. But um, in that moment, he should have stood up, stood up for Jesus. But he didn't do it. Instead, he fled with the rest of them. He, uh, he made one very pathetic attempt at cutting off a man's head, and he took off the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus just put it back and said, Peter, you're no swordsman. Now, that's not in the King James, but he said, uh, you know, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. So put up your sword. And so they fled. Also, the, uh, the other members of the disciples fled. Of course, Judas was among those that took Jesus. He was a traitor. He was paid off in the price of a slave, uh, those 30 pieces of silver, which he came back in a, a fury of, of guilt, and he threw them on the floor, and uh, that money was put into the potter's field, but uh, he went out and hung himself. That was a time of emotion, of passion, and things were done suddenly. Uh, I have a mentor who's now gone to heaven, and I am told, he told me himself, and he preached it from uh, many pulpits, that uh, through his life, he had kept a notebook and he had written down every situation that he could think of that might occur. And then he put down the biblical response and, so that in the heat of the moment, he wouldn't do what he felt like doing. Now, how many people we got here that, that have, uh, you know, hair trigger responses and sometimes emotional responses that you look back on later on? Come on now. That you regret. Come on. How many like that? You've said and done things in your life. Am I the only one in here? You know, the Bible says about the biblical fate of liars. All right. But, um, you know, many of us have said and done things we like to take back. And we got to be very careful. And that's what they did in the heat of the moment. Now, John went into the place where the trial was being held because he had, uh, he had connections. And Peter followed afar off. And I've had described to me the setup of how that was that when Peter denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed uh, in that part of the Gospels, that without a doubt, our Savior was close enough that had He been uh, there, He could have raised His eyes and looked with pity on the man who said He would never forsake Him. And uh, that stare, that look, would have just borne a hole through my heart, through my soul. Don't know if that was the case, but uh, Jesus had said, you're going to forsake me. You're going to deny me three times. And the disciples did forsake the Lord. And that was a terrible moment of abandonment and desertion. But when I speak tonight about deserting Jesus, I'm talking about quitting or giving up. Not in the heat of the moment, but because somebody has weighed the consequences. You remember how Jesus said, when you go out to battle, you consider the size of the enemy so that you don't go out to battle and then have to, in an embarrassed and frustrated way, you know, kind of resign your position and, and sue for peace. 
You don't want to start to build a tower and not have the materials or the manpower to finish the tower. Jesus Christ was talking about going all the way and finishing and doing things the right way in life, including this taking our stand the right way. How important is that? Very important. Very important. A lot of people think, well, the, the way uh, to live to fight another day is to run. And uh, in uh, Red Bad Badge of Courage, we were required to read that in junior high. How many of you have had to read Red Badge of Courage? And the horror of, of war during the, the war between the states, Civil War. And uh, the main character uh, coming upon uh, a, a man reposed against, uh, I think, a tree trunk. And it turns out he was dead. Uh, he, had taken, he had taken shot and he had died there in that place. And he, he saw that war was a terrible thing, a horrible thing. And in the initial battles that took place, in the Civil War, there are many people uh, that were advancing and many that were running the other direction. There were a lot of untempered, untrained troops out there. Uh, the first battle, uh, the first uh, uh, battle of Bull Run, that was fought right out here, not far away. There were all kinds of Union troops that had never ever fired a weapon. Uh, a lot of those Southern boys uh, had their squirrel guns; they could shoot the eye out of a chicken, you know, a couple hundred yards away. They were, they were pretty good shots, and they were picking them off. And there were these guys, that, and if you've ever seen some of the uniforms that they were decked out in when they came down from New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, never, never handled a weapon prior to this. They go out to battle, and the bloodshed, the carnage was awful. It was terrible. And uh, somebody that brought, kind of brought up the rear as they were coming down, I forget what state uh, group or militia they were from, and they said, thought the battlefield was this way and everybody was running that way. They were all running past them. It was a terrible, terrible thing. But that's what happens in the heat of the moment. Sometimes in the heat of the moment, a person will say something they shouldn't say. They'll pick up something, throw it. They'll do something with their hands. They'll do something they'll regret later on. They'll have to pay a, a huge price because of the lack of control. I'm not talking about a crime of passion. I'm talking about deserting Jesus based upon weighing the cost and deciding it's not worth it. It's not worth it. There are actually some people in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as their judge someday who will have to face the fact that they said it wasn't worth it. It seemed too hard. It seemed too difficult to go on, to serve, to finish, whatever. Here's the background. I want you to consider it. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And consider what's happening at the beginning of this chapter. Now the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke are what we call synoptic gospels. What that means, boys and girls, listen up. S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C means you can lay Matthew, Mark, and Luke alongside each other and in many places, they parallel one another. They have the same stories, the same miracles, the same teaching, the same parables, sometimes in the same order. And some of the wording may be different because Matthew wrote from a Hebrew perspective and Mark wrote from a Roman perspective and Luke wrote from a Greek perspective and he was a doctor and he was very wordy. Uh, Mark was very brief. So you may have some differences. And we do have 
the feeding of the 5,000 in the other Gospels. But here we have it in John's Gospel. And John's Gospel was written by the beloved Apostle, and he wrote it by inspiration from a different perspective entirely. He wrote focusing mostly on the, the last years or the very last months of Christ's ministry and illustrating and demonstrating from the miracles from the beginning until the ending that authenticated the ministry, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is who He says He is. In fact, that's exactly what it says in the next to last chapter. Let's hold our place in John chapter 6 because we'll come there. I just want to keep everybody on the same page here. Alright, we're going to go to John and chapter 20 and John chapter 20 and verse let's see, let's get the last verse here. John 20 and verse 30, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, what? That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Anointed One, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. The word believe or belief, believing, a form of it, appears repeatedly throughout the Gospel according to John. John was written for that purpose, to demonstrate uh, that Jesus Christ is in fact God in a body. In John chapter 6, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed Him because they saw His miracles, which He did on them that were diseased. So because Jesus had a good reputation for healing folks, they followed Him, and they were curious, no doubt. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now there's no, there's no uh, 7-Eleven around there. There's no grocery store. And this he said to prove him, to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread. Now keep in mind, a penny was the wage of a working man for one day. So 200 days wages. 200 days wages. Multiply that out times with typical days wages for a working man today. That's how much in today's money we're talking about. He said that would not be enough. 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Why? Because there's 5,000 of them not counting uh, women and children. There's 5,000 men. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. What did Jesus do? He took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. That's the key. So they didn't go hungry. Then they were filled. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them uh, that had eaten. Twelve baskets, uh, an illustration, one for each 
of the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, Jesus gave them as much as they could eat. And then He said, gather up the fragments that remain. And He is in the business of, of restoring and, uh, and uh, uh, keeping that which is left. He wants to, to do the same for us as well in our life. We have Jesus walking upon the water, and then He stands up on the following day, and He begins to speak and give commentary, give uh, analysis, uh, application of what has just happened. And He spends a good deal of time developing His theme that He, in fact, is the bread of God which came down out of heaven historically. Uh, he is the antitype of the type of manna. And He is the bread. He is the bread of life. He is the resource of spiritual life. And He makes it very clear that He is speaking of spiritual things. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. He said previously, verse 48, I am that bread of life. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, which is a true statement. He laid down his life. He was willing to die. The particular mode of death, the fulfillment of Scripture required that he shed his blood like the lamb. He is the lamb of God. So he's laying down his life, his flesh, his blood is going to be shed intentionally but now he is going to answer what they say in verse 52. The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That seems abhorrent to any sane individual. It sounds like cannibalism. And that's exactly what the unenlightened, I speak of those that had no religious training, in the middle centuries, when they would see the observance of Eucharist as twisted and wrong as that is by the representatives of the Roman Catholic organization, and they would hear the, the pronouncement in Latin uh, over the elements to turn them into, they believed, the physical, the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, which they're not, never were, never will be, but they would say uh, the Latin words, from whence, by the way, we get the derivative hocus pocus. That's where hocus pocus came from. And I am not kidding. And I had a high school history teacher explain that to me in public school. So they pronounced that. People peering through the bushes, uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Hollywood, pictured that for us in class, how they, they would see this going on and how this was magically being turned, to them it was magic, magically turned into supposedly the, the actual physical body and the physical blood. And then they would go scurrying off and they would tell the story that those Roman Catholics were cannibals because they were eating the actual body and blood of Jesus, they believed, but they were not. Anyway, this is what the Jews we're, we're reacting to. How can we eat his flesh? This shows how dull they are. I am told, preacher, I am told that this is known as a Hebraism. When he said, eat the flesh, drink the blood, 
that was understood by people that were tuned in. That he's talking about totally and completely accepting. Not rejecting, but taking in in total, completely. The, the whole, that was, say like, I, you know, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. That would be us saying, I, I was totally taken in. I, I totally bought into this. I completely did that. And that would be uh, a, a figure of speech, a Hebraism, that they had bought into it. So Jesus is saying, you've got to completely buy into this business of uh, a Savior who has come to seek and to save you. You need to completely buy into it that I am the anointed one. When he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he wasn't talking about the Lord's Supper becoming his actual body and blood, but that he would give his actual body and blood and they would need to buy into that. It would require someone believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work at Calvary and the empty tomb in order to be saved. I believe that. You've got to completely buy into it. And later on, when people have second thoughts, you wonder if they ever truly meant it to begin with. But that's another uh, discourse for another time. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about total acceptance. Receiving, completely receiving the truth that Jesus Christ is our substitute. He is the Lamb of God. And how do I know that as he taught those things? I want you to go over to verse 63, where he says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. In other words, he's giving what we would call a disclaimer. He's saying, in the flesh, physically, we can't accomplish what can be accomplished by spiritual power. He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He's referring back to his teaching about total acceptance of Jesus Christ. Not accepting him, receiving him conditionally. Not a, as I spoke this morning, not a partial half-hearted uh, kind of spare tire religion. It was Tozer who said this, Tell me what you think of God, and I'll tell you who and what you are. And that is so true. The kind of God that cannot be completely believed is not worth believing at all. The kind of God that cannot be taken completely ought not to be received in part. You can't... You can't uh, Take apart the Word of God and say, I like this, but I don't like this part over here. You, you can't accept a, a certain minimum, the, the absolute minimum. Now, um, there are those past theologians who used to talk about the irreducible minimum, and I agree when it comes to the, the orthodox truths or the fundamentals of the faith, as people speak of them, I understand that. But every single word of the Bible is God's word. Every one of them is given by inspiration, is, is protected 
by preservation, and every one of them has spiritual life in them. Right now, this book that you're holding between your hands, regardless of what you think of all those words, each and every one of those words is alive. It's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We have the obligation and responsibility to take the truth and based upon the truth, uh, act upon it as God gives us grace to do so. But that doesn't change anything that's in here. Whether or not we obey, it's still correct. It's still right. Whether or not we like it, it's still absolutely the Word of God. And when Jesus Himself said that His words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, He was giving the truth that those unsaved Jews, those Jews unwilling to be saved at this point, they had no capacity whatsoever to wrap their minds and their hearts around that. They couldn't because they, they wouldn't. They didn't get it because they didn't have any intention of getting it. They only had one goal. And while they may have strongly suspected, and I, as I read more and more in the Word of God, I believe there were those on the Sanhedrin uh, through the time of the trial of Jesus. And there were those uh, in the, the time of Paul that were among the ruling elite, the religious leaders, who strongly suspected there was something very much out of this world about Jesus Christ. And yet, because of the hardness of their heart, are you listening to me? They won't come to God through Christ. They won't do it. I remember preaching a message. I had a young man who had received Christ and he was so excited about the Lord, went outside to tell everybody about Jesus and many people refused him flatly. And he came to me and he said, why doesn't everybody just get saved? I said, that's an interesting question. There are buildings filled with aspiring theologians across, <laughs> across the United States and the world who struggle with that very question. But let me tell you one thing I know for sure. When we experience the sclerotic effects of unbelief, our hearts become so hardened that nothing gets through and there is no exercise whatsoever of whatever grace may be afforded. I believe the grace that would be afforded to these Jews, these unbelieving Jews, would be that God allowed them to take another breath, to, uh, to have another heartbeat, to live another moment by the very grace of God. But as far as saving grace, that was not going to happen because they were so hard-hearted. I believe God can do anything. God can save anyone, but there are some so hard-hearted they will not come to the light. They hate the light. The light exposes. And this is perhaps the best answer that in my limited capacity I could give this young man. Why don't they just all get saved? Why don't they all come to God? Why don't they all get saved? And the reason is because of unbelief. It's because of hard-heartedness. It's because they hate the light. They don't want to come to the light. They avoid the light. 
And that is the case here in John chapter 6. There are some of you that believe not, he says in verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. We know, of course, that's Judas. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. He says, And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's what he says. And in verse 66, From that time many of his disciples, these are people who have followed him, went back and walked no more with him. Some of these, without a doubt, to be with Jesus through this time of the feeding of the 5,000, at this point into the ministry of Jesus Christ, have demonstrated some potential. They've jumped through some hoops. They've given lip service to the Master. They've been curious. They've been thrilled. Uh, they've, they've liked the results. They liked that, that people got healed, that miracles occurred that the water got turned into wine, the blind people saw, that things were done that hadn't ever been done before, and perhaps out of that attachment, that level of curiosity, they followed after Jesus and were followers in that sense. But this following isn't deep enough to keep them. This commitment isn't strong enough for them to remain. They went back and walked no more with Him. They quit. They gave up at that point. One day, after Jesus had preached the unadulterated gospel, a large number of his followers resigned, walked out on him. The average preacher today, I'm guessing, would consider such wholesale, widespread desertion as justifiable grounds for re-examining their particular calling or at least where they're preaching, they might say, you know, maybe my job's done here at XYZ Baptist Church. All these people have left because the preaching was considered to be too hard. Now, is there anyone here who can justifiably say that Jesus Christ was wrong? No, he would cease to be God. He would not be God if he was wrong. Jesus was never wrong. And so even when he was hard and he spoke such hard sayings and he said, you've got to be all in. You've got to totally accept me. You've got to 100% completely walk away from everything else that you're attached to in the religious realm and I am the way. I'm the one. They couldn't handle that. There are many people who try to hedge their bets with Jesus. They want to come to church. They want to not be rejected. And so they'll pray a prayer, fill out a card, give a testimony. But when push comes to shove, they'll be among the subtractions rather than among the additions. I believe Jesus may have lost some of the most promising prospects. Who could, who could discount the rich young ruler? Here's a guy, whether he was telling the truth or not, said that he had kept the law the best he could. Now, certainly he was not perfect, he was not sinless. But 
There's a fellow that was very diligent about it, perhaps much more so than some of his inner circle of twelve. The group of his disciples that deserted him had been very fickle about what they wanted to do with Jesus. Go back to verse 15. This is back in the chapter, John chapter 6. In verse 15, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. That's where he prayed and then he walked on the water, as you know. So these same individuals were following in mass enough to create quite a stir, 5,000 of them out of curiosity, plus women and children, maybe what, 10,000, 20,000, who knows? He fed and had 12 baskets left over from the little boy's lunch, and now they're saying, hey, that, we've seen enough, that's it, we've seen enough, we're going to make you king, throw off the Roman yoke, and uh, we're free, Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. I, I think they were going to break into a chorus of that. They wanted to make Him King. But Jesus Christ did not come in His incarnation the first time to be the King. Only the King upon the throne of hearts. Only the King internally. But not, not the King literally. That's His second coming. That's His coming again to rule and reign. And uh, his feet will be planted there on the mount. He'll come back and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. But the first time he came as the lowly servant. He came to be the substitute, the dying lamb. And when they were moved to crown him as king and immediately a day later he says, no. Their stomachs that had been filled by the miraculous bread and fish suddenly were turning and churning. I, I can't handle this. He's talking about total commitment. He's talking about to the death. Flesh and blood, he's talking about dying. Their stomachs were hungry, but their hearts were hungrier. The Lord is speaking in mysterious words, spiritual words, meaning that he's going to die and they must be willing to go all the way with him. They must follow him. He's not simply going to go on over the hill and they just wait to see what's going to happen. They're going to go with him, but they don't want to. They would rather do, as all those people in the wilderness, the writer of Hebrews talks about, the psalmist speaks about them. They, they're out there in the wilderness. They saw miracles at the hands of Moses they came graciously from the Lord. Their needs were provided for. They were never without. And yet they murmured. And uh, yet they died there in the wilderness and did not enter in. We cannot be mere surface believers. We can't be skimmers when it comes to the truth. We need to go deep enough that it's a matter of heart commitment. Our salvation was paid for in full at great cost. The very life, the blood, the death, the agony of our Savior Jesus Christ. And what do we want? What do most people want today? I've said this for five decades of preaching. If I passed a piece of paper to every person in the Sunday morning office and gave them a pen and said, write down one to ten what you want in life, 
Somewhere 1 to 10, just about everybody would put happiness. They want happiness. That doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means their focus is superficial. Happiness is not our goal. It's not the chief end of man. To glorify God, that's the chief end of man. That's what the confession says. And people today are looking for some of the same things that those disciples that went back were looking for when they realized that was not in the program. They left him. They resigned. They wanted a religion that, number one, was social. Look at me for just a moment. Achieving social justice, look at me, is not a primary goal of the local New Testament church. Achieving social justice for all is not a primary goal of the local New Testament church. Now it is a primary goal, and in writing is stated as such, a primary goal of certain religious groups and uh, uh, subgroups within society. And they use their church, their religious organization, as a sounding board for a pronouncement of things that are unequal and need to be made right and force that needs to be taken, steps that needs to be taken in order for things to be made right. Listen to me again. The local church does not have as its primary goal to create a system of perfection on earth where justice is equal for everyone. That's taking Scripture out of context. We understand that is not the case. And I guarantee you there will not be equal justice for us once we start to feel the wrath of this system, this world system coming down, the, the, the hot breath on our necks, and, uh, and we're, we're being pursued. We're not going to have social justice. That is not one of our primary goals. And yet for many people, they, they want to go to church because everything in their mind in this world, before the millennium, so out of place, they say everything ought to be exactly equal. Well, let's just suppose for one mo moment that we have enough pressure and the means to extract from everybody <clears throat> all of their wealth and put it in one big pile. And then let us suppose we divide that pile by the number of people on planet Earth. And we gave every person an equal share of what's in that pile of material wealth. By tomorrow morning, there would be some rich folks and some poor folks. Because that's just the way it is in this present world. Our job is not to make things equal by, by government fiat or by, by social pronouncement. It sounds good when the social justice preacher stands up and he turns somewhere in the Old Testament prophets and he speaks about inequity and how God's going to make it all equal and we're going to have it now and we're going to have it in our time and we're going to, and everybody's amening because they can just see there's going to, be a second car or a first car if they don't have a car, and there's going to be a chicken in every pot. And that's just political speak. That's all that is. That's, that's just designed to get votes. That's just designed, you know, they're given a seat at the table, whoever they are, so that they can feel like something's being done, when in reality it's gamesmanship on the part of the political movers and shakers. 
And I hate to death that people have been subdivided according to their origin or according to their culture, according to their language, and then have been played again and again, not just by one political group, but by everybody who can possibly play the game. Makes me sick to death, and that's why I'm looking forward to King Jesus sitting on the throne of David. There won't be any political gamesmanship in that day. Amen. So let me just put a big knot, N-O-T, in front of social religion. There are certain individuals and religions that tend to be more so that way. Some of his followers thought they were going to see social uh, perfection. They were going to see uh, a new utopia. They thought that they were going to have a life in which there was nothing but sunshine and never uh, clouds and showers. But that's, that's not realistic. This world is filled with problems. And problems are part of the, the blessed program of God Almighty to bring us through by His grace so that we come out the other side better than we went in. God works through our problems and difficulties something for His glory. So look, if you're looking for social betterment, wrong. If you're looking for sunshine always and never rain clouds and showers, going to be sometimes but not always and then if you're looking for a religion of self of sin being able to do your own thing where God is an old man and he just kind of smiles on everybody as they go about and they just say well God knows all about it and God understands that we're weak and God understands what we desire and what we need what we want Oh, God understands perfectly. There's nothing that God does not understand. There's nothing that He does not know. That doesn't mean that a stamp of approval is upon it. And just because He is long-suffering and merciful doesn't mean that the next time we get away with it. Most church folk today want some kind of combination of social betterment, sunshine all the time, and selfish, sinning religion. And that's why... This world is in such a mess because what ought to be uh, a wall against those things and ought to be an obstacle against those things is trying to facilitate those things. And there are some very dishonest, wicked people standing in pulpits and leading congregations, sitting on official boards and making decisions along those whims and, and lines of thought of people who want social betterment and sunshine all the time and selfish sinning religion and they're going along with it and I, all I can say is I'm not God but there is a hell to shun. There is a hell prepared for that kind of phony, baloney religion. There are people, not all mega churches are wicked but there are people who have huge crowds because what they're saying goes along with this pattern, this program. They would never think about embracing a Christ who requires that they be all in and that He will, as a result, radically change their life from the inside out, make them a brand new creature so much so that they will be willing to go to their own martyrdom singing. They can't imagine it. 
Religion is only fine to some people as long as it doesn't interfere with our way of living. Jesus is not offering them first a crown. He says, before the crown there must be the cross. He's saying, he's saying, you must be ready to walk with me. And where are you walking, King Jesus? I'm walking up a very rocky, stony path to a place called Golgotha. They say, that's the place of the skull. And that's right, it's a place of death. I'm going to willingly give myself. I'm going to die. And there is a cross for you to bear. And there is a cross for each one of us. And they're going to say, we'll get back with you. As they back out and they go their way in droves. Jesus, I want you to notice, did not try to coax or con them into staying. I have to confess, preacher, that in my ministry, I've talked some people into staying and probably should not have. We've been somewhat long-suffering and merciful, and I'm not perfect, far from it. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But God makes the terms of service. We don't. We come forward, we lay our life on the line, on the altar of sacrifice and, and of dedication and consecration. And then he says, all right, go with me, walk with me. We give ourselves wholeheartedly, not reservedly. We don't hold back. And he says, all right, give me your heart. And he takes our heart and he leads us in the way that may be rough, may be difficult, may even mean our death, but he knows what's best. God sets the bar. He makes the terms. In, on too many levels, preacher, from the seminary down to the Bible college, down to the pulpit, the city, town, the country. Too many people are trying to reset the bar. Wrong. God has set the bar. He says, here it is. You need to be all in. Totally. Completely. We sing, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. I wonder how often we sing it and truly mean it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'm going to ask you tonight if this little message on deserting Jesus has struck a note, has resonated with you. If God spoke to your heart about anything, would you slip your hand up right now? God spoke to my heart. Amen? Amen. Let's not quit. Let's not give up. Let's not give in. Let's go on with the Lord Jesus Christ and for Him, for His glory. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And would you pray right now from your heart to God, something like this, Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. Right now, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. Did you pray that prayer? If you meant it, slip your hand up. Anyone at all? Let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing a verse of a hymn of invitation.